When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode 169 of the Love That Album podcast. My name's Morris Bashtinsky. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. Go to pantheonpodcast.com to find out about all the other wonderful shows on the Pantheon Network if you wish to listen to some more music discussion. So I apologize if you are a fan of the show that I didn't do anything last month, that being August of 2023. Anyway, here we are back in September of 2023 and and the show that I have for you this time is a discussion that I had earlier on this week with an artist that is fine artist, someone who draws and paints. Her name is Pauline Bailey, not a musician, but she knows a hell of a lot about blues music, particularly the local blues scene. She's released four books under the title Blues Portrait, a profile of the Australian blues scene. Count them, one, two, three, four. And I think she released the first one just before the world shut down for COVID. So four books and they're pretty thick tomes over the last four years is really quite extraordinary. So basically the format is that she speaks to any number of Australian blues musicians and there's a few in there who are not strictly speaking blues musicians, but they really have something to say about blues and the love of blues, even if they don't work in that milieu, that genre, that style, however you want to say it. And she even goes and speaks to a smaller number of non-Australian blues musicians but those who have toured here quite a fair bit and have something to say about the blues and in particular the Australian scene. When you hear the conversation, you'll hear about some of the people who are in the book, but there's about 162, if I remember correctly, maybe a little bit more, musicians who are covered in the book. And it's incredible. There'll be names who you'll know and there'll be names who you won't. I think it's a good thing that there are a lot of names in there that I didn't know because they're younger people who are just coming up through the scene now. And there are some older people who I didn't know 
as well, but blues music in this country is so diverse and a lot of localized scene. But there were a ton who I did know, and it was fascinating to read up about their stories. So we talked through a few of their stories in the discussion, uh, a little bit about how Pauline came to write these books. And it's not stopping here, folks. This is going to be an ongoing franchise, as they like to use that word in movie descriptions. She is going to be releasing volume five. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe sometime in the next year or so. She said that she's taking a month off and is going to be getting started on that. Uh, we'll talk about how it is that she came to interview these various people and the format of the book, which read more like an oral history rather than question answer type stuff. So if you're a fan of Australian blues music, you'll want to get into these books. Uh, if you don't know anything about Australian blues music, here's your chance to find out. I've included in the show notes the ways how you can order these books, should you feel so inspired after you've listened to this discussion. So anyway, enough of this blathering on. We'll go to a quick break and then I'll come back with my discussion with Pauline Bailey. And after that, I'll talk to you about what is happening next month on Love That Album. I got a dusty old pile of vinyl records sitting on my floor. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can find previous episodes at lovethatalbumpodcast.blogspot.com or you can get it along with any of the other great music discussion shows at rockandrollarchaeology.com, all part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. To keep up to date, subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. You can email Morris with feedback or album suggestions at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash love that album and start a music related discussion. To many film fans, this is seen as a classic film quote. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. This one is too. You talking to me? Over at Sea Here, however, we're very fond of this one. How many times do I have to tell you? No pizza for you, Joey. Not to mention this one. Grease is the best, man. <laughs> what makes us different to other film discussion podcasts? Tim, Bernie and I talk about films that are music-centric. Ours is the only podcast that has found the link between Hated, the Gigi Allen story, Ishtar, and Yellow Submarine. As well as roundtable film talk, we also speak with directors of music films about their work. So if you love music and you love films, join us at See Here. That's S-E-E-H-E-A-R. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Even Mozart likes the show. <laughs> oh, baby. Yeah, you put your spell on me. Welcome back to episode 169 of Love It Album, and I'm very, very excited to have on the other end of a phone call. That's that's it, a phone call, not a Zoom, not a Skype call. This is a phone call, and it's someone who's in my city and on my time zone. It's such a rarity for this show, but I want to welcome to the program Pauline Bailey, the author of four books under the title of Blues Portrait, a profile of the Australian blues scene. Welcome to the show, Pauline. 
Hello, Morris. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you very much for being had on the show. First of all, I wanted to say congratulations on the release of Volume 4 of your series of books. And they've all come out like in the last four years or something like that. As I said, these books are called Blues Portrait, a profile of the Australian blues scene. As I've discovered reading through this, it's not slavish to the notion of it being exclusively about blues musicians, not even always Australian, but mostly, though by and large, blues is the focus of your book. Regardless, the series of books is so important as a record of the local blues music scene that it doesn't seem that it's been covered by anyone else. I mean, do you know of anyone else who's gone and done a book, not necessarily similar to what you're doing with speaking to individual musicians, but talking about the history of Australian blues? Do you know of any other books? Not to my knowledge, no. And that, that's what prompted it, really, because I've always thought that blues was underpresented despite it being popular and it has a, has a big following, but it just didn't seem to be represented. How long have you been thinking about this? Probably only since I worked with a Melbourne musician on a book back in 2016. We released that in 2017. That was Kim Bolkman. That was his autobiography and just got me thinking about perhaps asking other people if they were interested in telling their stories. And I've always loved blues. And I just thought, well, I wonder if they'd be interested. So that, that's really how it started. That's what planted the seed. If I had a dollar for every time I crucified you and crucified me I sit at the table like a really got in your hands now is an incredible oral history of Australian blues music and for those of us who've been listening to it and loving it for decades this is incredibly important this is some legacy I think to have and this is only something that you've done only in the last few years and was only considered on based on having written one other book for Kim Volkman I want to go back a bit further though you're originally a fine artist and I'm presuming it's your picture on the cover of uh, volume four of this book beautiful picture of a, of a piano this upright piano in the parlor i just want to sort of go back what were your origins falling in love with painting and drawing who are the artists that you were particularly drawn to as a child i'm presuming it's, it's something that's something that's always been with you I went back to study at the age of 40 in 2006 and I enrolled in a visual art course. So I was a bit of a late starter. <laughs> you didn't paint or draw anything like when you were considerably younger? Uh, I used to draw a lot when I was a kid. I always loved it. I've always wanted to paint and I just never never got around to it. And um, you know, had my kids and that sort of thing and brought the kids up and, and then thought, well, this is something I want to do. So I enrolled myself in a course and then got my Diploma of Art and I've been painting ever since for the last 15 years now. Which artists are in your pantheon of great painters? I'm presuming that you had some Australian heroes, I don't know, going back in history, Sydney Nolan and the like. Oh, yeah, definitely Sydney Nolan. There was a local artist who was actually my teacher here in Gippsland, Bill Young. His work was just beautiful, really surreal, surreal work and beautiful landscapes. And um, he was a great inspiration for me uh, later in life when I started studying. There was a, a wonderful artist who'd gone and done a terrific painting of Don Walker for the Archibald. I don't think it won, but it really seemed to me to capture him. Uh, is portraiture something that you're interested in? And for that matter, would painting one of your subjects in these books be something that you'd ever consider? Well, that's interesting because that's actually what I started doing when I went back to study and, and started doing visual art and painting, 
I did a series of portraits and they were Lobby Lloyd, Billy wow. Thorpe, Ian yep, Ian Ryland, Scott and Pete Wells. So I did, did these five portraits because they were all people that I loved and of course they all passed away within a short time. Four of them anyway passed away. Passed away. Bon Scott died quite a few years earlier but the other four all passed away quite close to each other. That's actually what led me to meeting Kim Boltman because they had one of the paintings hanging in St Kilda in a record store down there. Ian Ryland painting and he walked in one day and, and purchased it and that's how we met and, and uh, that of course led to his book and that led me to this point now what I'm doing. I'm presuming though that your love of blues music goes back considerably further than when you actually started painting. Oh, for sure. Always been a music band since I was a kid. And I realise now all the stuff I liked when I was younger was blues, but I didn't know it at the time. I loved slide guitar and Johnny Winter and all that sort of stuff, but didn't realise at the time that was blues. But I've been going out to see live bands since I was 16, underage, <laughs> back in Melbourne. Do you remember the first record that you bought? Oh, yeah, that was Skyhooks living in the 70s. Oh, well, anyone of our age, wasn't it everyone's first album in this country? <laughs> Definitely. But um, yeah, I loved going out to see bands like Rose Tattoo. That, that was the big one for me, always has been. The Angels, Kevin Borich. Amazing to, to be able to still go and see Kevin Borich play. I saw him this year, you know, 40 years, 40 years later. like elsewhere that blues-based rock was a huge thing in the 70s. And there's a terrific anthology that was put out by David Lang a few years ago. I'm sure you would have seen this one around Boogie, Australian blues, R&B and heavy rock from the 70s, featuring oh, featuring Chain and Billy Thorpe, your painting subject, and Wendy Saddington and Renee Geyer, Max Merritt and Carson featuring, featuring the uh, late departed Broad Smith. So I presume that these were all artists that you were also drawn into. Australian Boogie, Carson, I absolutely love Carson. And Southern Lightning was, was actually a band that I really, really loved. They were probably the first first band that really got me into blues back in the day. I presume you, you liked a bit of a dance. Oh, yeah, still do. <laughs> <laughs> 58 and still, still doing it. <laughs> Fantastic. Long may you reign. Long may you keep doing that. <laughs> Did acts like these particularly strike you as different sound-wise from their American equivalents? I mean, I think you mentioned Johnny Winter before. We keep hearing people say, oh, Australian blues is its own thing, probably by virtue of tyranny of distance and all that sort of thing. But can you articulate what you think, if at all, the difference is between Australian blues and any type of American blues? I mean, American blues isn't one thing either. Yeah, it's really hard to put into words. I think Australian blues is unique. It's got its own feel, got its own sound. I mean, bands like Chain and Carson, they couldn't be anything off that Australian. There's just something, something about it. I think Australian music's got a bit of an edge to it, especially our guitar players. Do you think we have more of an emphasis here on hard rock mixed with blues? You watch like the film of uh, the Sunbury Rock Festival, at least the first one, and yeah. all the bands seem to be the volume of a jet airliner while um, being very blues-focused. And uh, I mean, it just seems to me that that was, I don't know if it's unique to Australian, but it is very much an Australian flavour. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Yep, yep. Perhaps it's come from that pub rock culture, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But yeah, definitely got, got a harder edge to it, I think. So let's come down to your books. When I bought the first three volumes, which I got all in one hit from you, I was astounded at how many people I knew. I was wondering, oh, is this going to be like a whole lot of acts that are going to be very, very obscure that I haven't really seen or heard from? And there are plenty in there, I'm delighted to say, that I don't know because it means it's more I've got to look into. But some of the people who you interview in the book, are, uh, Ken Farmer and Kerry Simpson, Sweet Felicia, Dave Hogan, Phil Parrock, Continental Robert Seuss, Margaret Roadnight, Mally Stick, and a few guests who've been on this very podcast. Anthony Short of Collard Greens and Gravy and now Opelousas, Sarah Carroll, Shane Pacey, who's like a semi-regular on this program, Chris Wilson and Chuck Jenkins. Uh, sorry, I should say that, Charles Jenkins. And there's even a ton more. You've got young players, you've got older players, traditional blues musicians, and some whose music really even barely connects to the blues tradition. But these people told you that they had a love of blues, showing that blues has always been part of the local fabric. You mentioned that you got inspired to write volume one after having worked on Kim Volkman's book. But once you decided that this sort of history needed to be preserved, how did you decide what format you were going to put with the book? And how did you actually get around to contacting these musicians? Were they keen to get on board? Did they need convincing that a, uh, someone who'd only written one book before was up to the job? I decided to aim high and ask some people that I already knew, and they happened to be quite well known. So the first person I approached was Mike Elrington. And, you know, I just tossed the idea around with him. And I said, what do you think? He said, I think it's a great idea. Go for it. That was the green light. So I thought, well, I'll ask Lloyd Spiegel, Diana mm. Boyd, Jeff Atchison, <laughs> Ian Collard, Dom Turner. And all these people said yes. So these are all people who, by virtue of the fact that you'd been an audience member for all, for their shows and you'd gone and given them a wave and they knew who you were. Um, or, or yeah. Had... And I was cheeky enough to ask and they said yes. <laughs> so that, that's really how it, how it all came about. Out. So one person led to another, and of course I never, never thought I'd get to four books, but here we are, four books. Dare I be so uh, adventurous to say, I suspect you're not stopping there. Uh, I still have a list. My list never seems to get any smaller. I'll <laughs> <laughs> be in number five. Looking forward to uh, seeing who you pick for number five. I'm going to ask you later on in the show about one particular person who I'd love to see show up in a book eventually and see whether you'd consider mm -hmm. them. But, but yeah, I wanted to ask you about the format of the book because I've got uh, a wonderful friend in Adelaide, Michael Persh, who put out a book, and just a very small run of people who he'd interviewed over the years for his show, Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide. And that has been more a traditional interview question-answer type layout in his book. But in your book, it seems to be more like an oral history. You write an introduction for every artist, give a very concise precy of you know, their career and their life, but then you just hand it over to them. So what was the story? Did you just say, look, can you write me an essay for the book? Or did you write questions and then you just sort of edited in each one as an essay? Only interviews, some face-to-face, -face, some over the phone. A few were emails, but mostly interviews. I wanted to keep it in their, their voice, so I just did the editing so that it came across as a conversation. You know, I wanted it to come across like it was told to me, and I wanted to have a little introduction for each person so that anyone reading 
reading the book, know a little bit about the person before they read read their piece. So yeah, I just wanted it to be like a conversation, pretty much. It reads very, very well. I mean, it sort of like reads like a stream of consciousness. Each one of these interviews, and I mean, look, I'd be a lie if I said I've gone through all four volumes. I haven't, but I've gone to read pretty much like most of the people who I've seen or I have in my record collection or CD collection, and that still leaves quite a few. I just love that stream of consciousness approach uh, that they each do in telling their stories. Did you have like a set format where you might ask them, you know, tell me about your childhood, tell me about the first concerts that you went to, tell me where you started, or did you just ask one or two questions and let them just keep on? It all depended on the person. I, I had a basic set of questions, but sometimes we, we would deviate from that and just wherever the conversation went, basically. Mm. You know, some people stuck to the questions. It was really just seeing where the conversation went. And the thing is, I, I think it's, there's a lot of joy in these stories and that's what's appealing about it. They're not contentious or political. They're just stories about people's lives and their musical experiences. Just very genuine, honest conversations. And not, there's no one really that was wanting to pump their ego up or talk themselves up. They were just, just nice, honest conversations. It's interesting, though, that you mentioned that there's nothing political about this. There's, there's one particular artist I wanted to ask you about because he said something which... I know is a lot of people's opinion, but so I, I want to refer to Kim Salmon. mentioned artists who he listened to really early on, who he loved, like Alan Wolfe and John Lee Hooker and Jimmy Reed, and then the artists in his own backyard who he loved, like Matt Taylor of Chain and Dave Hole. But he also raised the point brought up by Lou Reed that as a white middle-class guy from Perth, he struggled with similar people playing what originated as an African-American art form, and Salmon wasn't even on the same continent. There are others who see the blues as universal, and that's something that Max Crawford Daddy says in his intro to volume one. So it's a, it, he takes a different perspective. The blues music is a, a, about celebration as well as commiseration. And that's something that no matter who you are, you can identify with. But I mean, look, I imagine that you sort of feel differently to how Kim articulates it. Otherwise, there'd be none of these books. But did it ever strike you at any point that he had a point? I think what he means, I think he just means we don't have that same deep history going back so far. And I think he struggled with that because white people haven't been through what they've been through and had the same experiences. And I think that was what that was what his, what his point was. And I remember Jeff Lang saying something similar, saying you just can't imagine what it would have been like being a black musician in that era. As a guy from Geelong, I think he said, you've just got no idea. But I think really when it comes down to it, it is universal. And the notion of playing blues is more about feeling and feeling the music, I think. That's just my opinion as a non-musician. <laughs> well, actually, sorry, that's a question I missed. I was going to ask you whether you'd learnt anything. Were you forced? Were you forced at the piano or at any time? No, no not at all. No, completely not non-musical. Musicians need their fans as well. Yeah. So the, the Australian music community, the Australian blues community, thanks you profusely for being a fan. <laughs> what made you decide to include people in the book like Charles Jenkins or, for that matter, Kim Salmon or even non-Australians like Henry Rollins, who don't really have a musical output that could be described as blues? How did you decide them? Or did someone say, hey, uh, we can get you Charles or we, or, or we can get you Henry Rollins? What made you pick artists like those to be in your book? Some of those people, I just, just, just out of my own head, 
head the people that I admire and people that I'd seen perform that I liked and purely just because I was interested in their musical journeys and how they got to where they are and whether blues was an influence or not and I just thought that would be interesting an interesting aspect aside from all the, the blue purists just just a little bit of, of a difference in there mm. um, and what I found was that most of them do have some sort of connection to blues so that was really interesting How did you get Hank Rollins? Don't ignore me Just sent him an email and he was nice enough to reply. <laughs> wow. Sometimes that's it. you just got to ask, don't you? And that's, that's been the whole thing all the way through. I've always said to myself, well, they can only say no. Did anyone? There have been a couple that have said no. I'm not sure why, but, you know, everyone wants Some people just, just um, I guess, don't want to be in it. I don't know. <laughs> Poo-poo on not them. Not sure why, but, yeah. They, they would have been immortalised for all time. That doesn't bother me, you know, it's to their own. Mm. But um, yeah. most people, well, 99% of people have said yes, which is amazing when you think about how many people are in it. I mean, this is something like 170, 180 people thus far. That's just incredible. Yep, 172, which is amazing, yeah. We don't have time to go through all 172, but I've gone and picked out five musicians who have been pretty big in my listening life and just wanted to get a few impressions from you about their stories and where you fell into their music. So I have to start with probably the most beloved individual in the Melbourne music scene for any genre at a period, and that's Chris Wilson. Goddamn anticipation As coquettish as a bride Goddamn your sense of isolation Your sense of hollowness inside you spoke to him, I think, a week or two before he passed away, and he was very frail, as I understand it. Yet his conversation with you was so positive and encouraging of younger artists, for which he was a mentor. How did you approach your conversation with Chris at that time? Did you feel any trepidation considering his poor health? Oh for a long time and it's very hard to get around to people and you get busy with one and then on to another one and, and you think I'll come back to this person and then of course he was ill and yeah, it just didn't happen and it was really really important for me to include him I just felt that it wasn't ever going to be complete if he wasn't in it. I'd been in touch with him and, and it just didn't pan out and then Sarah his wife got in touch with me and she said he really wants to do it and we're going to have to set up a phone call I said I would love that and um, you know we had a couple of goes at it and he, just, he wasn't well at all. Anyhow, finally we got there and, and had the phone call. Had a, it was quite a short chat. He, he wasn't wasn't doing very well at the time. I wrote the interview up straight away. I just felt like I had to get it done. Mm-hmm. Wrote it up, formatted everything, sent it back to him so he could see it. And I also sent him some little little bits and pieces that other people had said about him because I really wanted him to know how much he was appreciated and how much he was loved. And I was in two minds about whether to do that, but I did it. And his wife got back to me and said he was absolutely wrapped with it and gave it his blessing. And then nine days later, he passed away. I really do feel honoured that he gave me that time. And you, you spoke with Sarah separately, not just about her own work, but you also spoke separately with Sarah about Chris, got her thoughts. 
I did. And she, she actually wrote a lovely piece all about him to include in the book. And then in book two, I interviewed Sarah, did a lovely interview with her and her lovely boys in book three. I mean, on the one hand, you shouldn't shouldn't really be surprised, you know, considering the musical pedigree, but um, I've just found the breadth and diversity of what Fenn and George have been doing over these last few years to be absolutely incredible. Not just great musicians, but they're not sticking to any one thing. I think if they sort of learnt something from their parents, it's embrace all styles of music, you know, be it blues, be it singer-songwritery type of things, be it country, be it psychedelic, folky sort of stuff. They've just really embraced everything. And Fenn, he's taken on his father's voice. Both of them have actually got beautiful voices and, and very different voices. But yeah, you can certainly hear Chris in both of them, I think. So do you remember where you first came into Chris's music? Oh, I remember hearing it on Triple R Radio one night years and years ago. What is that? That voice was that just knocked me out. Was it Crown of Thorns or was it like Love it was Crown of Thorns? Yeah, it was Crown of Thorns. Yeah, Face in the Mirror. I can even wow. tell you the song. What, mm-hmm. what, what a fantastic introduction! And the face in the mirror tells me I'm doing bad. I first heard him through Landlocked and then Continental and then went back to the older stuff and I mean that earlier music is a world away from what he what he went on to do, but it's all part of that musical journey. He was so good and I presume you went to see him tons of times. Oh, yeah, for sure. Any chance I got, yeah. And I mean, again, going back to that, he wasn't a conventional blues artist, what people would would call a blues artist. He was just his own thing, wasn't he? He was an incredible songwriter in his own right, although down-and-out traditional, whatever that is, acoustic country blues, um, was never far away from what he did. I remember one time seeing him perform, and he did, I can't remember, it was some country blues song, and he said, if I don't do this song, my wife will kick my ass. Um, (laughs) So, so yeah, a great songwriter, but also a great traditionalist. And I remember hearing him talk on the radio when he was reviewing music-related books. He'd be talking about Howlin' Wolf and God knows who else, you know, so the traditionalists always seem to guide what he did, no matter what he did. Yeah, that um, the album he did with, with Diesel, short tour ones, that is oh, an absolute ripper. <laughs> I was overseas at the time and a mate from work went and wrote to me and said, when you get home, I've bought you a copy of this album. It's the number one album in the country. Um, mm. I couldn't believe it. I thought, an album of traditional blues tunes, number one, maybe because it had Diesel's name attached to it. I'm so glad that Chris had a number one album. He, he, he deserved that adoration. He deserved that respect. Oh, he did. He deserved a lot more, I think, than, than he got, really. Long way from home, you can't sleep at night. Have your telephone, something just here, guys. That's the about. Evil's going on wrong. But I am warning you, brother. You better watch your happy home. 
the second artist I want to sort of bring up to you, when I first reached out to you, uh, we both spoke of our admiration for Melbourne drummer, percussionist Ken Farmer. I first discovered him as part of a, a band called the Mudcats, which was a band that would play a weekly jam session for years at the Swan Hotel in Richmond, I think back in the 90s. Yeah. And he was always so lovely and encouraging. And then I'd be at a regular at his gigs with the Paramount Trio, which did basically pre-war blues covers. And I'm, I haven't read the chapter, but I'm pretty sure you got Warren Ruff um, as well in, in the book. I haven't got Warren Ruff. No, oh, you don't? No, no. You, have, you have Dave Hogan, though, I think, right? I do have Dave Hogan, yeah. Okay, oh, and you had at least at least one other Paramount. So Ken would be playing washboard as well as his kit, which was something of a revelation to me. In the book, he talks about his fascinating life playing drums in his early years with the Yarra Yarra Jazz Band, playing on a, on a boat to England or something like that. That might have been one of his first times like playing in a band. It's just been incredible. And then traveling through New Orleans and hanging out in Preservation Hall till the money ran out and then traveling through Jamaica shortly after Bob Marley had died with his wife, Chris, uh, who was inspired to take up the bass as a result. So yeah, a really fascinating life. And uh, as you know, I think we both agreed in the previous conversation, just uh, a beautiful man. What were your recollections of first seeing Ken play? Or when did you first hear him? Um, I think I first saw him playing with Blues Hangover, which was uh, oh, one right. of Dave Hogan's women. Yeah, yeah, that would have been the first time I saw him. My baby told me she don't want me no Perhaps the Paramount Trio. I did see the Paramount Trio a few times, but definitely can remember him with his hangover. And that, of course, was Pete Wells, who was my slide guitar here. I absolutely loved Pete Wells. And that had Lucy DeSoto. Yeah, and John Sachs, of course, was, was in that band as well on bass. Yeah, that was a, just a fantastic outfit with hangover. Sort of related to you as an artist, I remember on one occasion uh, when my son Max was very young, I'd taken him to see you know, the Paramounts, and he'd become like a music lover really early on. and he he was almost like a mascot for uh, collard greens and gravy. Uh, went to see them a lot. But we went to Ken Farmer's house and he had this room full of old antique drum kits. But the thing that I found really fascinating was he took out a book of the art of Maurice Sendak. It seemed or even more than his drum kits. He was a fan of his artwork. And I just found that absolutely charming. It's always nice to sort of see what else besides the music, what else uh, passionately draws in your favorite musicians. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, a lot of musicians actually are good artists as well. The Kim Salmon is a really good artist. Dave Brewer, he's another one. Always hearing about the early '60s, the rock musicians started off in art school, so um, yeah. I guess that, that yeah. makes sense that the local ones did too. Yeah, there's quite a few, and Phil Manning, of course, he just had a fantastic exhibition at Mario's in Fitzroy no a few weeks ago. Yeah, he. He's, he's come back to painting later in life, and boy, he's really producing some good work. So the third artist I want to ask you about is a, a fellow who I didn't actually know was a drummer. My shame, but I had long known of him as a singer, incredible singer. I'm talking about Carl Panuzzo. My shame, I've never seen the Checkerboard Lounge. I remember I worked with a guy many years ago who told me, you've got to come out and see the Checkerboard Lounge. Now you turn the eyes You're so warm-hearted, baby 
but Carl's story bleeds into stories of the local scene involving people like Tinsley Waterhouse and you know, he just mentioned Fiona Boys and Ben Collard and the Reverend Mick O'Connor and really the the godfather in a way of blues in Melbourne, Dutch Tilders. What's your history with Carl and what do you remember about first seeing him? Oh, with Checkerboard Lounge, of course. Just just so dynamic, he's you know, singing and playing drums and he's just, just full on, right on the money. He's just a brilliant performer. But his story, I love his story, he's just the way he's put it into words, how he feels about music, he's just putting it into words so beautifully. He's just a great performer. They're, they're a really, really good unit and they've been together for so many years. It was actually one of his first bands. I think it may have even been his first band at all. So the thing where I first knew or heard his name was for an ensemble called Those Acapelicans. Lovers singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings Capella singing has been a huge part of my life, so uh, as well as blues music. So when I heard, oh wow, there's a local acapella group, of course, which has blossomed incredibly over the last 20 years, but I think those acapellicans were around long before there was a local um, uh, harmony vocal scene. So uh, amazing to find out that as well, he's a blues singer and blues drummer. Yeah, yeah, I don't know a lot of Carl's earlier stuff. I know him only from Checkerboard Lounge, but um, yeah, he's a brilliant performer. Now, a singer I've only come to be familiar with in the last last couple of years is Sally King and as we discussed by text I'm a huge fan of Shane Pacey who's been on the show like about seven or eight times and um, I paid attention when he mentioned that uh, a side project he was doing Pacey King and Dolly was going to record an album and I wish they'd come to Melbourne now Sally has uh, an incredible voice but it took to reading her chapter in your book to find out her history and she was friends with Bo Diddley for years for goodness sake uh, who she played with and was introduced to Carlos Jobim uh, while playing in Brazil. She had a fascinating story. Were you a long-time fan of Sally and her work or were you only sort of more recently uh, made aware of her? My soul cried out in the darkness The night I heard you died You were gone from this world My more recently but what a discovery what a beautiful thing have you travelled up to Sydney to see her? I haven't but I may be travelling up to Sydney in November just between you and I so. okay. <laughs> I should cut that bit out then <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting, interesting to have both sisters in the book, Sally and Bridie. And they, I think they've really enjoyed reading each other's stories because they've both got different recollections from when they were kids and all their lovely memories. And of course, they had the King Brothers, which is no relation, but the King Brothers in book three, which was Ron and Jeff King. King again. Yeah, it's just lovely to have those little family connections as well. She had a lovely story. I've yet to read Bridie's story, but as I said, I've still got a lot of chapters to go through, but I've gone and read a fair bit thus far and I was drawn to Sally because I thought, oh, right, I should only newly enter her. Let's uh, see what she's got to say. And it was, as you say, a beautiful story that she had to tell. Um, mm. And yeah, as I said, just my jaw dropped when you know she was telling those stories. Oh, yeah, yeah, we were friends with Bo Diddley for years and played on stage yeah. with him. And I thought, what? <laughs> 
there's a photo of her with his guitar yes. in the book. <laughs> Amazing. So the last artist I want to ask you about, and once again, this is you know, no reflection on the other artists that I'm only picking five, but really, these are just five that I thought had fascinating stories and that I'm a big fan of. So I found the chapter about Jim Conway, another really interesting one. He'd been part of two very different, but two hugely important bands as a harp player, Captain Matchbox Whoopi Band and the Backsliders. And he talks about his journey as an aspiring blues harpist in a country where, let's face it, there's no shortage of really amazing harmonica players. Another artist uh, who's played with someone big in the field, he got to play with Branny McGee. And no small feat for a man who'd partnered with Sonny Terry. So what are your earliest memories of, uh, of Jim Conway? You know, was it through Captain Matchbox Whoopi Band or seeing the backsliders? It was my first time seeing Jim. His story actually was completed and then his wife got in touch with me and said he'd like to add some more to it. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's struggled a little bit with his health lately. He's had MS for quite a few years. So she, she said, I'm going to help him with it. So she, she actually sat down and interviewed him and asked him a few extra questions. So we, we ended up redoing all his and adding all his, his extra pieces in, which and his story has turned out really, really good. Yeah, certainly one of, one of the longest stories in the books. It is, it is. And yeah, I mean, I'm happy to do that if somebody's not quite happy and they want to add more that's fine you know it doesn't bother me at all so yeah that was that was really nice that she put the time in to get all the extra things in that he wanted to say um yeah he was quite a long piece have you gone back to listening into any of the uh, captain matchbox stuff because that's like a world away from backslider stuff well and i remember them from when i was i was a lot younger actually jim's brother mick sent me a book one of their books this is what happens too these people are so generous you know i'm always getting presents cds and books and whatnot Jeez, I better start writing books. I'll get people send me stuff. That would be lovely. They're just very generous people. He just seems like someone who's absolutely celebrated uh, life, celebration of the blues, and he's never let having MS get in the way of anything. He's always been there playing the harmonica, and that whole chapter just really screams of celebration, of of gratitude for um, having a supportive community and getting to play with musicians who he really loves. I mean, I came to Captain Matchbox Whoopi Band years after the fact, but, uh, I mean, I was left wondering, in 1972 when we had bands like we were talking about before Chain and Carson how does uh, a bunch of hippie looking guys get successful with an album that's basically looking at 1920s Dixieland type jazz really and that's what makes the Australian music seem so good it's just so different there's so many different aspects to it since making more B became on the rage Has even gone into the old birdcage My canary has circles under his eyes Under his eyes He used to whistle a prisoner's song Now he just snake hips the whole day long My canary has circles under his eyes 
Your first book had an intro from uh, Max Crawdaddy, who has been hosting the Son of Crawdaddy show forever on 3RRR here in Melbourne. Was Max someone who um, was able to put you in touch with any of these musicians? Was he, did you ever come to him and say, look, I can't quite find uh, such and such a person? You say, oh, don't worry, he's in the phone book, Pauline. Yeah, I asked Max about was Blacksmith Hopkins because I, I was in touch with him years ago and then lost touch with him. Mm-hmm. And he sent me his email address and that was the only one through Max. Most of them I've tracked down myself, but there are certain ones that I've been put on to. Like I got in touch with Margaret Road Knight, and that was through Sarah Carroll. She gave me her details. And when I got in touch with Margaret, she said, yep, I'm happy to be in the book on the proviso that you put two of my friends in. So I thought, I don't see who they are. <laughs> she said, my friend uh, Kenny White. And, of course, Kenny White was one of the folk people back in the day that, that predates the blues scene in Melbourne. So he was a very important person to include anyway. And Jeannie Lewis, who's a beautiful singer from Sydney. Okay. So I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to include both those people. So I did. And, you know, I was lucky enough then to get those two people who were, were fantastic to deal with as well. And then, of course, I was trying to track down Kenny White anyway because Angry Anderson had mentioned him as being a big influence on him. Okay. And I got, I got hold of another Kenny White, different guy, born in Melbourne the same year, but a jazz player. So he's actually in book two as well. So I've got the two Kenny Whites, and it's, they're really interesting people. So yeah, things, things like that happen. One road leads you somewhere else and takes you to another person. So that happens quite a bit too. Do you foresee that in a future volume of the book that you'd also try to reach out to any of the, say, the peripheral people, not necessarily blues musicians, but people, well, I mean, I'm sure if you asked Max to do an interview, he he wouldn't hesitate. But you know, people like Helen Jennings over at Roots of Rhythm at PBS or Billy Pinnell. I have actually, I have thought about that. And um, Max, of course, in particular. And there's different people, like there's, there's a guy that used to run Muddy Water Cafe in Melbourne. I remember that place, yes. You know, yes. And he's a treasure trove of photos for his art, but oh, I mean, the stories that man would have. So I'd be very interested in talking to him as well. Mm. So yeah, that, that could be on the agenda a bit further down the track. Volume 5, here we come. Looking forward to it. <laughs> um, <laughs> People so, are asking me for it, which is amazing. And Volume 4 only came out a week ago. Congratulations, by the way, I should say. It was a wonderful launch. I don't think, my, my sister's a published author. Uh, but I think yours is the first book launch I've ever been to. So um, my bad. If my sister's listening to this, I apologise. I'll bet the next one, I'm sure. So yeah. you, you've already gone and mentioned the Muddy Waters Cafe, which I'd completely forgotten about. I mean, that was where I think Collard Greens and Gravy had like a, I don't know, seven or eight year residency or something like that every week. But what were some of the more important blues venues for you in Melbourne and any of the people outside of Melbourne or overseas in particular? Uh, I'm sorry if these names will mean nothing to you, but really just sort of trying to document a little bit of local history. So what were your favourite blues venues in Melbourne? I mean, places like the Rainbow Hotel or the Albion Inn, where were the places that you frequented the most or think did the best service? to uh, local blues artists. Um, the Central Club in Richmond, that was another good one. Mm-hmm. And now the Catfish is, is, a, is a great venue in Fitzroy. They have their blues roulette night every Wednesday night, which is um, a revolving group of musicians that come in and play. So they have a, a rhythm section of Ben Wicks and Johnny Tesorero. Mm-hmm. And then they get different guests in every week, and it's just fantastic. You know, they've had people like Jeff Lang, Kerry Simpson, James Southwell, you name it. They've had everyone in there playing. I'm on the wrong side of town. I'm going to have to check that. Uh, I wasn't even aware of it. That's um, a great night on the Wednesday night. Hmm. Um, way out west, that's another good venue. You know, Archie's Creek, that's another good one down in South Gippsland. Were there any historical venues 
any venues from say like you know 20 30 years ago or even earlier that you know of that you think even if you haven't been there but you know were particularly important any musicians went and said oh you know geez the the tf much ballroom was incredibly important to us or incredibly important to the local music scene any other venues that you can think of yeah all before my time those ones but that one definitely that you mentioned Bertie's is another one too that people talk about yeah there were quite a few back in the day where the cherry bar is now in Little Collins Street that used to be a folk club back in the day but yeah that's had quite a bit of history as well in Little Collins Street Wow, I had no idea. It's currently the cherry bar now, the new cherry bar. I'd love it if there was a coffee table book. I remember years ago seeing a brilliant coffee table book of the history of Melbourne cinemas. And I thought I knew mm. Melbourne cinemas, but so many that were around there closed down in the mid-1950s. Uh, it was a real shame, but I just, I'd love to see someone you know, with maybe even with old photos of you know, these older venues, which have not been around for years and years. That'd be a great book. Well, I do that myself because I paint a lot of the, the venues that are the subject of, of my paintings. All the old pubs and venues, Corner Hotel and Cherry Bar and the Rainbow, I've painted all those. So, yeah, that, um, that's an interest of mine as well. Sorry to put you on the spot here, but what have been, like just talking about this year, favourite blues albums that you've heard this year? I'm just sort of trying to get people to realise that it's, you know, even though, you know, I mean, a lot of the artists who we've been talking about have had their important days, like in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, but it's still very much a going concern in this town. And I apologise mm. to the rest of the country if I've been very Melbourne-centric, but I'm, I'm trying to ask questions about my backyard. Who do you think has um, come up with uh, any of your favourite local blues albums from this year? Oh, well, I've been listening to Lloyd Beagle's new one, Bakehouse Dozen. <laughs> trombone guitar and drums would be a, a, a typical band lineup but that is magnificent doesn't lisa just bring something special to that band now with her trombone she, just she really does mm-hmm. um fiona boys has got a new one out too rambler oh, really? oh. yeah yeah dom okay. turner and the rural blues project another one but the backsliders is still a going going concern though right yeah yeah that's just an, another side project for dom <laughs> one of many frank sultana's ghost of sun that's a, that's a great album too recorded over in Memphis when he was over in January, recorded at some studios, so that, that, that's a beautiful album. Paul Buchanan's Voodoo Preachers, that's a great album too, Down Selling's Lane, that's, an, that's another new one I've been listening to, just off the top of my head, Rod Payne, Rod Payne and the Full Time Lovers, they've got a new one out too. You weren't born to be abandoned You weren't born be forsaken. You were born 
wondering if you're going to come up with like you know maybe two or three and you've gone and given us half a dozen to uh, <laughs> investigate but which is what i want for me and i want for the listeners out there to have something to investigate so have you been contacted by any musicians begging you to put them in uh, future editions <laughs> Not, not really, but you do get the odd friend request on Facebook. Hello, I'm here. <laughs> my website. <laughs> my, my website. <laughs> I've had a few of those. You don't think they have an ulterior motive? I, mean, I, I don't want to be. I don't want to be too, you know, suspicious or anything like that, Pauline. But <laughs> no, no one has brazenly asked the question. So. <laughs> yes. This is going to be a crazy question, but you know, you've only just released Volume Four, but are you working on Volume Five at the moment? I. Uh, ideas in the pipeline from people on my list. Mm. So, yeah, yeah it, it will. Once I've had a couple of months off, I'll get back into it. Start again. Well, on behalf of uh, all music fans in this country and those, I'm talking about people who have discovered your books and those who are going to discover your books, a huge thank you. I'll be putting a link in the show notes for people where they can look at your website and investigate who's been in previous books and how to order the volumes of uh, your books. Yeah, look, this has been absolutely great, Pauline. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who's supported this project. I'm just blown away by how much people have supported it. It really is fantastic. The local musicians are being immortalised and their stories are being told and us as music fans have this as a point of record. I mean, have you had anything like in the National Library contact you and say, hey, we think these books are important. Can you donate a set to the National Library for archival purposes? No, I haven't. But uh, when you publish a book, you have to send a copy to the State Library and the National Library anyway. That's oh, part of you know, what you have to do so that they do have a copy, but yeah, no one no one has been in touch in that regard. So thank you very much, Morris. It's been been great being on the show and thank you my absolute pleasure all right we'll be back in a moment you're listening to episode 169 of love that album and i'll be back to talk about what is happening next month on the show My huge thanks to Pauline Bailey for taking the time to talk to me about her great set of books. Four in the series thus far. Blues Portrait, a profile of the Australian blues scene. Over the four books, there's something like 170 plus subjects that she interviews. That's quite a lot, folks. And these books, you can read them in chunks you don't read them from cover to cover necessarily or maybe you do that's fine too but you can pick up read about two or three chapters get a perspective on specific artists and the australian blues scene in general and then come back to it a few days later it's really really super enjoyable these books they're fantastic volume four just came out a couple of weeks ago as i said in the interview i was at the launch and that was a hell of a lot of fun but pauline has copies of all four volumes of the book so far i'll have included in the show notes details on how you can order the books from her okay let's talk about episode 170 of love that album that'll be out in october of 2023 and for the third time in a row 
I'm speaking to an author, but I'll also be speaking to a podcaster as well. So Lisa Torum has written a few books in the series, Every Album, Every Song. And her latest one is Suzanne Vega, Every Album, Every Song. And pretty much as the title describes it, there's some history going on in the book, like what led up to Suzanne recording and then a track-by-track analysis of each song on every album that she's recorded. And it goes quite deep. I'm really enjoying the book so far. I haven't finished it yet, but we'll have definitely finished it by the time that we get round to speaking. And because I discovered Lisa on another great podcast called Booked on Rock, the host is Eric Senich. And as the title implies, he speaks to authors of music-related books. I have quite a thing going at the moment for listening to those sorts of podcasts. Booked on Rock is really quite an excellent podcast. He has quite a good feel for getting the best out of his subjects and have really great conversation on his show, Booked on Rock. So given that I discovered Lisa on his program, I thought, well, I'll invite Eric to come along as well. So we're going to be talking about Lisa's book, but I've wanted for the longest time to talk about one specific Suzanne Vega album, and that is 99.9 Fahrenheit Degrees. So I've asked Lisa and Eric to come on and basically have a discussion about that album. So getting back to the core idea of what this program is supposed to be about, picking an album and dissecting it and talking about what we love and what issues we might have with it, that sort of thing. October 2023, episode 170, Lisa Torum and Eric Senich talking about Suzanne Vega's 99.9 Fahrenheit degrees. Hope you can join me for that. All right, until next month, go search out some Australian blues. Go search out any blues. Go just search out some great new music. Hope that you find something that you can really enjoy. Post it in the Love That Album Facebook group. Tell us about about it give us some recommendations or even just give us your thoughts on any of the albums maybe that we discussed in today's episode would love your thoughts all right until next month look after yourselves all the best cheers It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com 
code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 